In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was. We do it, Chris Kindle. And yeah. it's a look at the draw, then, if you get someone that wants or is expecting something expensive. Yeah, I bet you're kind of told. <laughs> I wouldn't buy from my girls, for instance. I'm, to, I'm told don't give me the girls because I wouldn't know what they'd want. That surely buy something wouldn't be good enough. We, we put a limit of 150 on it. You're doing a bit of shopping, is it, for Christmas? Yeah, we're just trying to get all the presents for the friends, kids and stuff like that. Yeah. And what about yourself? What are you looking forward to about Christmas? Uh, PlayStation games. So you have the PlayStation, you just need the games? Yeah. So a lot of children are, are looking to get the console, they're hoping they're going to get it? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not looking for the new console, I'm really just looking for the games. I don't really need the new console. What's the coolest game out at the moment? GTA. You look like you're way down here. What, you have four big bags? Yeah, yeah. full of Christmas toys. Yeah. Did you get what you were looking for? No, money's starting. Still have a good few left to get, because I only have a baby, so it's all baby toys. So I'm sorted for a few years. You start early, or are you picking up a few bits already? I'm exceptionally late the whole time doing my Christmas shopping. Last it's minute? It's a disaster, yeah. yeah. Christmas Eve you're in search uh, Almost Christmas Eve, yeah, but I hope to be a bit earlier this year with a bit of luck, you know. So what are you most looking forward to about Christmas? Uh, probably seeing family and just having the crack with them. The family's more important to you than the presents? Yeah. You'll take a few presents as well, though, will you? Yeah. Like what? Uh, I don't know, I think getting a phone. Oh, very good. Yeah. Your first phone? Uh, no, seconds. So, guys, what are you most looking forward to about Christmas? Presents. 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 What's on your Santa list? Uh, TV. TV? Yeah. Your own TV? Yeah, my own TV. Right. What are you looking forward to of Santa? Presents. Presents. Whatever's under the tree, you'll be happy with? Yeah. I'm looking for a bike. A bike? What colour bike? It's uh, blue everywhere else while the handles are... It's called a mountain bike and the handles are white and it has gears. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever asked yourself what it's like living with an invisible disability? Well, take a listen to this. I assume, though, like for invisible disabilities, mm-hmm. there's a massive range of different disabilities they could be. It is so broad. It can range from mild to severe, for starters. And then, obviously, it could be a mental health issue, chronic illness, physical mm. disability, learning disability. So if you add all, on, all that on top of it, you know, it's, it's very hard to know if people do or don't have, have a disability anyways, let alone if someone approaches you. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah. And, and you kind of have to prove your disability, which is, you know, you shouldn't have to. Um, and yeah. just because you can't see it, it does not mean it's not there. Yeah. And so in, in Invisible Disability Ireland is, is your main purpose to try and just deliver that message. Yeah. To, the, to everybody else that, you know, think and first. The message is so simple. Just not all disabilities are, are visible. Some are invisible. Um, and I wish I could open up my body and I could show you my heart and my joints <laughs> and show you, you know, what's going on inside. But I can't. So it's just taking people's word for it and being a little bit more empathetic and understanding towards people's situations because you don't know what's going on in someone else's life. Yeah. And someone's body. Uh, well, is there anything that you'd like to see be done to make perhaps people be a bit more aware of these things? Um, well, I worked with the NTA, so we're hopefully um, introducing a badge for people to give up their seats to uh, people with invisible disabilities on buses. So that is something I'm so excited about. I've worked so hard for that. Um, just people being uh, more aware, uh, being supportive. Um, I think if colleges and schools and workplaces just perked up their ears a little bit more and say, how can I be more accessible and inclusive? Because um, when I was coming in today, someone said, um, is there any any needs? that we can meet and I was really taken aback by that and I shouldn't have to be because no one's ever asked me that before like imagine hmm. in the 21st century no one says 
Um, are all your needs being met? You know, is everything in our building is accessible? Do you need anything? And I couldn't get over how surprised and taken aback, like uh, considering I'm, uh, you know, an advocate for this. Yes. But it's just not common practice in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, but well, I suppose it's not really an excuse, but I mean, you don't look disabled. Yeah. You look perfectly healthy. <laughs> and I suppose that there's a cognitive dissonance for people there as well, even, you know, before they can get their head around that. Yeah, so it's just appreciating that, asking everyone, you know, yeah. is, is there any way I can meet your needs? Because they might have a disability. So it's really just being aware of that. And we all have, you know, unconscious biases. Mm. If I was, you know, you do look at me and you think, gosh, how is that going on with her? Like right now, I mean, all the things I have to deal with, but it's all there. It's just hidden. So it's really powering home that message to people. Yeah, and it's people's reaction. There's a... I come into work. I come into work on the dart. Oftentimes, I'm on the dart. There's this, this one young fella who um, he's usually on the dart by the time I've got on it. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know uh, what his disability is, but he obviously has a disability. Uh, but his thing is on the dart. He walks up and down. He can't sit down mm. for whatever reason. Uh, and so that's grand. And the first time I saw this fella walking up and down, I was going, "What's going on?" And then I realised what it was. But it's interesting the reactions that he gets every every few days. Someone would say, "You're yeah, right." Uh, I, I, in yeah. a slightly narky tone like don't be doing that it's putting me off it is the fear of judgment yeah. um, you know it's there and it's prevalent and people won't use resources or you know do the things that they need to do because of that fear of judgment so it's so important that you, you, you do what you do um, in terms of your own accessibility and how you can suit your disability needs and people just have to work around you um, because we do live in a, an ableist world um, and your needs are not met so you just sometimes have to go around the system or do what it takes for you to feel comfortable or yeah. you know inclusive Emer uh, says my sister has an intellectual disability and often because people don't know how to respond to that so sometimes they don't acknowledge her presence uh, how was that appropriate uh, Eamon says I have uh, psoriatic or I probably said that wrong sorry Eamon uh, arthritis myself yeah. and on injections but on in no way comparable to that young lady the drugs work <laughs> well for me and I do not consider myself disabled in any way but I do get annoyed when I see people parking in a disabled spot when they do actually have the pass but it's there for a relative of theirs and the relative is not with them should there not be specific spaces for wheelchair users on top of disabled spaces I don't know that's it does that almost start to go then there's disabled and then other disabled yeah no it is something I've looked into and um, they piloted um, a sunflower a car parking space um, so the sunflower is kind of the unofficial official uh, symbol for invisible disabilities um, one of the schemes is called the sunflower lanyard is where it came from um, in terms of car parking spaces it is a really tricky one um, you know it's very hard because naturally people with wheelchairs obviously need to use it um, mm. but also there are other disabilities um, and the statistics are they haven't expanded the scheme there's no national quota so you're kind yeah. of reliant on if there's a space there, great. If there isn't, there isn't. And so there is a lot of uncertainty. So people can't always plan their trips, um, especially if you say a physical disability. The certainty isn't always there. So it is a massive problem. Yeah. Uh, sure. J- Jack wants to know, what is the most common invisible disability in Ireland? Or is it possible to answer that question? Um, it's chronic illness, uh, yeah. according to the 2016 census, which I was quite shocked by. So you can imagine the amount of chronic illnesses. It's um, um, colitis, um, awareness week, Crohn's and colitis, uh, IBD. So you've diabetes type 1 and 2 lupus rheumatoid arthritis there's so many different types of disabilities and chronic illnesses this super impressive Emily Larkin from Moncrief on Monday Pat and Faye Short join Pat Kenny on the Pat Kenny show 
Now, you know, don't put your that. daughter on the stage, <laughs> Mrs. Worthington. Yeah. Um, that's the, the injunction to, to anybody not to put their daughter on the stage, um, which is exactly what you've done, Pat Short. Yeah, I, well, she went to drama school, so I'm trying to earn back a few bob <laughs> from the fees. <laughs> you get so, your money's worth. Yeah. So, yeah, no, look, it's, sure, I know that's the, the classic saying, isn't it, Pat? But um, she's a flair for it and she's very funny. So um, it's great to be working with her. It's good fun. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> All right. Now I've talked, I've talked to Pat so many times over yeah. the years, but Faye, I, I have not spoken to. So no. let's get a CV from you, uh, Faye. We've just got a little bit of it that you went to drama school. Yes, yeah. But tell us what what it was like growing up, looking at your dad making yeah. an idiot of himself um, on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was something else, Pat. Um, no, it was it was it was mad to be honest. Um, seeing him in all the different characters when he was doing Killing Scully, I'll never forget him dressed up as a woman. That was a sight for sore eyes. Um, that was a difficult one now, but um, <laughs> we got we got we move we move. Um, now, th- th- yeah. That's the point, though, that you know your dad is in character. Yes. So the Pat Short that people see in all of these comic roles mm. is not necessarily the Pat Short that you see at home, but still. I suspect that 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 sense of humour, it doesn't switch off. No, not really. It doesn't. No, it's um, we, we have a lot of crack at home, and uh, obviously it's a different different version of himself at home. But no, we have great crack, and I that comes out in the work as well. I think like working together, it's just so much fun writing and coming up with all these ideas. Yeah. And what about uh, your desire then to follow him on stage? Uh, When did that crystallise? I mean, were you very young and, you know, were you a show-off? Did you (laughs) insist on singing at Christmas and performing for... (laughs) Yeah, I I did Spotlight. So, like, I did did drama all my, like, in primary school and then secondary school. And then it was, like, coming up to the leaving cert, I was like, do I want to do this as a career? Or like, would I just keep it as, you know, a hobby? You know, I was thinking of doing business at one point. And then I was like, no, I'll bite the bullet and just go for it. Um, And I got the audition. I got into the Gaiety School of Acting. So once I got that, I was like, no, this is this is meant for me. And I uh, ran with it. And yeah, I I love it. So much fun. I love it. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, obviously, you had to pay the fees, Pat, at yeah. that stage. So you wanted the, uh, the return on your investment. But were you in any way kind of slightly dismayed? Because, I mean, you've had a great career so far and long may it continue. But there's a lot of heartbreak in the uh, dramatic professions. Yeah. Yeah. This is for Faye, in, in a sense, Pat, that question, is it? Um, no, it's for you. For me. <laughs> I'm worried, worried about her, isn't it? <laughs> I, tell, I, I tell you what I mean. You, you know, a doctor, a yes, doctor yes. will uh, put the son or the daughter if they can get the points into medical school yeah. because yes, yeah. they know it's a nice little earner. Yeah. Um, well, but, I, but, I know. I know what you're saying. I mean, I, look, I, the way I always look at it is, it is a very, very tough profession. There's a lot of people in there trying to get the job that you're trying to get. Yeah. And um, what I would say is, Faye, is she's got a talent that doesn't always work. If you've got a talent, there's plenty of talented people who just don't get to work. It is a tough. Life, but it's been good to me, and the way I look at it, she, you got to give it a shot anyway. I suppose from her point of view, um, I think when Faye went for drama school, we it, it was a big shock to myself and Caroline because we didn't see her that you know we, mm. she was doing drama the whole time, but she actually was very passionate about it and, and kept it hidden the whole time. Yeah, I did uh, actually. Yeah, which is a funny yeah. one, you know. I suppose because of me being on screen and and working all the time in it on stage and that, she probably just held it back. But um, obviously, 
went to drama school and then on to film school. So, yeah. so he's very talented in that area. So look, you have to give it a shot and you're only young once and have a bit of crack. And, mm. we're, you know, we're, we're doing that at the moment. Pat and Faye Short from The Pat Kenny Show. You're 32 years of age. Um, you're out here in the storm having a pie. Is it a curry pie? Yeah. You're living at home. Would Bank of Mum and Dad help you get a deposit together? Mm, no, not really, no. be told to go and do it myself. And do you think that's the way it should be, that you should be independent, you should save up your own deposit and you yeah, shouldn't get help? Yeah, definitely, yeah. 100%, yeah. And do you have much of a deposit? No. Anything at all? No. Will you start? Yeah, we'll start, yeah. And when do you think you'll move home? There are thousands of young men like you who are 30, 32, living at home. When do you think you'll be able to, to move out? Maybe in another two years. And you'll be able to raise the deposit by then? Yeah, 100%. Have you helped out your children buy a place? Um, at the moment, they're not at that stage for actually buying. But one is renting, and the price of it's unbelievable, you know what I mean? And what is the rent? The rent, you're talking about 1400 a month, and that's a very, very small place. And is that a house or a flat? A flat. One or two beds? One. 1400 for a one bed. That's, that's exactly what you're and paying. And are you helping them pay the rent, let alone? No, at the moment they're, they're managing, but if it was any more, they're struggling. Like, How can they get on a property ladder when they're paying that much money to rent? So they, they need help from their parents. And can they you need. understand why 40% yeah. of uh, new purchases, yeah. uh, those deposits are basically bank of mum and dad? 100%, yeah, without a doubt. It's a, the whole place is just, a, forgive me, a sham. And that's being as mo- as nice as I possibly can about it. So you're saying the property market in Ireland is a sham? Is yeah, that what you're saying? it is. It's a rip-off. It's a rip-off. Everything has gone up. Bar the wages. I think there's no problem with it. I think that um, parents, if they worked hard for it, to hand something down to their, their children to give them a help out, I think it's, yeah, I'll be doing it with my children. Did your parents help you? No, they didn't. They weren't in a position to do it, you know what I mean? So I understand what it's like, but obviously a bit of help would. You would have liked the help, but did it make you more self-sufficient? I suppose more of a, a winner, you know, more independent that you didn't get help? No, I just think here, it was my upbringing anyway. I always worked hard for everything that my parents always taught me to to work hard, you know, for everything that I've earned. So I kind of just worked at that, you know. So. But you will help your kids out. Oh, I will, I you will. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I will. Yeah, I will, you know. The blame should be put on the banks. So you think the banks should be blamed? Because your generation, it was just one income yeah. was enough to get a mortgage, wasn't it? That's you didn't true, need yeah. two incomes. No, and uh, when the banks needed to be bailed out, the government stepped in and bailed them out. And now I think the government should step in and build the people out. And yourself, when you bought a property, what did you pay for it all those years ago? About 150000 or something like that. So it was still a lot of money. Still a lot of money, but... But now it's probably three times that. Three times that now. So I think the, the government has a lot to... You know, even you can see it even today, like with, not even with houses, just with uh, fuel prices and all that. They're allowing it to go up where they could stand in and stop it. So if you had the money, you would help? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And yeah I, I feel the same. We have two sons and they're both living abroad. So, uh, and they're both pretty independent? They're independent, yeah. They're yeah. not ringing you looking for wads of cash? No, thank, thankfully. But we would help them if we could. And do you have money under the mattress in case they did ring? Not really, no. I would help them. We didn't need to, thank God. You didn't need to? No. No, but, no. We but you would. I would, yeah. yeah. No problem. And why do you think 40% of first-time buyers have got some sort of financial boost from their parents to help pay the deposit? Well, it's the only way they can get it. They've no choice nowadays. I don't like it. I did help as well. And you didn't like it? Uh, I didn't like it, and I think they were embarrassed as well. But uh, it's the way of the world, and 
it's the way the finances are at the moment. It was yeah. embarrassment all around. You were embarrassed, they were embarrassed, but you had to. You had to do it, yeah, to get them on the, on the property ladder. So. And have they looked back? Yeah. Are they doing okay? They're doing great, yes. Yeah. And hopefully I can have the next two as well. <laughs> two more to go? Yes, yes. You'll be smash broke. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I say. You can take it with you, so you may as well have them. Yeah. They never leave home. Because they can never be able to afford it. So they would still be living with mum and dad if you didn't give them some money. Grandparents as well, let me tell you. So three generations in one house if you didn't help yeah. pay. Yeah, it's it's not right and it's not... Does it give them no any independence? Hope. Does it no. give them any hope? No. And you can, you try your best to give them, a, give them a goal of getting independent. And it's impossible for them. Henry McKean reporting for Moncrief. On Friday, off the ball, spoke to Munster rugby legend Jerry Flannery. Here's Jerry Gilroy. And was Wenger present? Was he around kind of in, in making sure that everybody was doing what they were supposed to do? Or was it more like if he needed to, he would come down and kind of make sure that everything was going on? I think I think Wenger, like, I, used to, I, I spoke over with my mates in that, like, I can see what, I can see how Wenger changed the club in that, like, the food, the, the quality of the food was phenomenal. And, you know, when I spoke to, like, uh, when I spoke to some of the guys who had been in the club a long, long time, they said, listen, it wasn't always like this. That Arson had a massive, massive effect when he came in. Now, a lot of the stuff that, that, that Des was trying to bring around long-term athletic development probably was outside of Wenger's remit, or, sorry, outside of his knowledge base. But he was very interested in, in, in how the young players were in terms of their attitudes. He would constantly sit with... Uh, he would sit with Des and he would speak to him and say, like, how is this player? How are they behaving? Making sure that they're, that they're you know, because te- they recruited players te- to be technically able to play for us. Arsenal had a real, real identity um, around how they played the game. But they also wanted to make sure that the, you know, that the, that the players were understood how lucky they were and that they were behaving. And, and to be fair, Liam Brady, Liam Brady didn't, you know, he didn't pull any punches. He was, he was hard on the young academy players if they, if they got out of line. And, and himself and Wenger were aligned on that. Okay, forgot Brady was there as well when you were there. Um, that was kind of just coming towards the end of his time there, I think. I think it was his, yeah, it was his last year. But right. like Liam carried Liam carried a lot of weight. You know what I mean? Like to the point of, you would have coaches who would be out coaching, and I, you know, I give my heads up. I say, lads, you've got eight minutes left in the session, and then Liam would just walk out from his office, and they just keep going. And I'd be like, listen, I said, lads, the session's done. Wrap it up. And they'd be like, nah. I was like, why? And he said, Liam is over there. I said, so what? And they're like, but they were going on this kind of thing, like, oh, Liam's there, so we want to keep working, keep working. And I said, well, the players have been out for 75 minutes now. That's long enough, so they need to get back in. Right. And obviously, like, you know, they, they didn't take well to, to, to taking that from me, but, like, I think that I, I, when you speak to people at the club now, they'll say, listen, it's night and day now because, well, like, the likes of, of Baca and, uh, and Emil Smith-Rowe, like those kids now, it's ingrained in them. Oh, they don't know anything better. They don't know anything different than just coming in and just being a being a pro athlete and a really good footballer on the way. Whereas at the time we were trying to get kids to to, to work twice as much, and they couldn't see the they probably immediately couldn't see the benefit of it. So it's a, it, it's a change of culture that you're trying to inject into it, and you can see the benefits of it now in the players that are coming through and and how ready they are. It'd be really interesting to see what the athletic profile difference between Smith-Rowe and Saka is versus the players who were just breaking into the first team when you got there and, and the benefit, the long-term benefit of um, the more, 
I, what, 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 how do you describe it? Is it calisthenics, whatever the, the gymnastics and the, the stretching and all that kind of stuff? What, what is that? What, how would you describe that? I think it's just their their, their physical literacy, you right. know, just being That's able it. to like just being robust, being able to play their sport, to be able to recover and and to maximise their athletic potential when they're able to play the game. You're not trying to turn them into you're not trying to turn them into weightlifters or anything like that. You're just trying to make sure that like they they they, they cover a huge amount of ground and like they they play so much and they have such short windows for preseason that like you know almost 10 days when they're back from their summer, they're, they're playing matches and they play, they could play two, three matches a week. So it's, it's relentless, you know? Jerry Flannery and Jerry Gilroy from Off The Ball. I see you, M, I, in case you missed it, on News Talk. Carl, I was asking, I asked people at the start of the show just if they'd like to get in touch with us with their own experience to tell us how they found the pandemic and whether or not these figures actually reflect their own experience. I have an interesting text in here from a listener who says, I put on 20 kg over COVID because I worked so hard, was stressed and under pressure. Another listener as well getting in touch saying something quite similar, but just wondering, what do you do? Like, how do you go about changing? Yeah, I think it's about learning, whether it's a positive learning experience or one that isn't quite so positive. I think you have to step back and look at life and look at, okay, what do I do right? What do I do wrong? What do I need to improve? What do I need to change? We do a lot of work with companies around the country and in Europe around staff and employment well-being over the course of the last two years, particularly, where if they are working from home, they've got virtual commutes where they go out before work, after work, they've got, they separate their environments in terms of work and home. It's all about getting the toolkit that you need. So if you have put on 20 kilos, first of all, don't, you're not alone. Lots of people have. That's yeah. the first thing. Second of all, what simple changes do you, make to your, do you make to your health that can change that? So I would suggest the first one is obviously you need to track something. So track your movement potentially, maybe track your waistline, your resting heart rate, and then track that consistently over the course of time and make some simpler changes to, to improve that. So like that, the virtual commute um it's talking it's all you know tracking your food potentially if you need to even with an old school food diary just write it down and have a look at what you're eating and also just trying to improve that so it's about it's about not make not pressing the you know the the january gym member button because that's not good it's actually far harder carol to do that anyway isn't it you know well it is but actually we're coming into that time of year right you know we're looking for wellness and it's deep health that we look at now it's not just it's food it's movement it's sleep it's stress management it's all of the it's the social components of it and it's balance so we look at that deeper health version of wellness now and it's looking at all those areas getting a pen and paper out over christmas sitting down and say okay well you know, what is my food? How is my food? Is it good or bad? How is my movements? How is my social connectedness? How is my sleep patterns? And looking at all the different areas. And it may sound like a little bit of work, but the reality is this is the kind of work that we need to do. It's not just a, a, a quick fix solution for four weeks in January that returns us to, the, you know, your starting weight after eight weeks. It's not that. It's spending a little bit of time in yourself, investing in yourself and say, okay, if I want to lose 20 kilos, how am I going to do it? I'm going to aim for one pound weight loss a week and I'm going to do it by sleeping better, watching less telly, less screen time on my phone, cooking a little bit more and getting some more movements in and tracking my movements each week and ensuring I'm getting the right type of movements in. It is that simple, but most people try and complicate it. Sit down with a pen and paper, look at those different aspects of your health and wellness and see what simple changes you need Mm -hmm. to make to make those sustainable changes for the long term. And if it is a quick fix, we all know what they are, but yet so many people still do them. It's (laughs) got to be deeper health. And we know that's what we need to look for, for long term health. And we can see it from the survey. People want to make the changes. We just need government policy. We need the decision makers in in terms of planning and, and councils 
they need to look at this survey and start adjusting uh, where and how we live relative to what people okay. want because we know they want them. And the survey provides such a wonderful launch pad for what changes we can make. They just need to look at it and, make, and you know, help people to move better and cycle more and walk more because people want it. Well, there's definitely so, definitely plenty to, to consider there for sure for government um, on the policy front and lots too of good, I think, uh, takeaways and advice points there, Carl, from yourself as well. Health and wellness expert and personal trainer, Carl Henry, also Eunan McKinney from the um, Alcohol Action Ireland. Marie has got in touch to say lower levels of social connectedness, increases in anxiety, one in three complaining about weight gain. These are not... Um, um, these are not a reflection of well-being. Your guests don't seem to be talking about that. Yes, drink use is down from where it was, but the picture is hardly good, according to Marie. 53106. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. On Thursday, Nigel Owens joined Kieran Cuddihy on the Thursday interview. Here's a short clip. Unless you accept there are issues in your life, whatever they may be, whether it be dealing with who you are, worried about, you know, um, your kids in school or going to university, um, financial worries, relationship worries, pressure in work, job security, you know, whatever those worries are, whatever is the issue that is making you feel down or making you struggle with with mental health, unless you accept that are issues and there's no way you can go on to the to the next stage of right, what am I going to do about it? And that was the biggest challenge of, of my life, really, was accepting who I was. You know, we're in the World Cup final in 2015 between Australia and New Zealand, you know, the biggest game in world rugby, which only happens once every four years. The pressure on ref in that is, is massive. It is huge. But it was nothing, nothing compared to the challenge of accepting who I was. And once I accepted who I was, I was then able to get on in my life. It still took me another five or six years before I actually told with people. I was still living mm. that lie because there was, you know, there was nobody out in the macho world of rugby. So I didn't know if I was able to be my, myself. And I still struggled for a while after that. But, um, you know, but but I think society has changed you know that at all people are respected now you know you're not ju- you're judged now on on the content of your character and the person that you are not on your sexuality or the color of your skin or your or your religious beliefs you know and i i think that is hugely important i think so we do live in an environment now where people and, and it you know and i don't like saying this accepted you sh- shouldn't be the people accepting you should be able just to get on with your life and and bo- be who you are and there's still there are sort of you know extremisms in all walks of life there's still people there who don't like somebody for whatever different various reasons but i think things are very different today to what they were 30 40 years ago so yeah. the fact that i was able then to to accept myself and deal with myself and you know, society and, and rugby in particular allowing me to be who I am certainly have contributed hugely to me being comfortable with, with who I am today. Yeah, it's still at the same time you look at how many professional rugby players there are, you know, on these islands alone and you look at all the ranks of, of, of professional footballers as well uh, in Britain and how few openly gay players there are. Like, it, it would lead you to suspect that while society has come a long way, there's still a way to go. Unless you accept, unless you you are of the belief that there are there are no gay footballers. Oh, well, no, I, I doubt that's that, I doubt that's the case. <laughs> um, look, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think look, you know, no, nobody nobody can ever turn around and tell me that rugby is is a homophobic sport. It, it's not um, because I've proven that Gareth Thomas, Sam Stanley, you know, England Sam, and I know a huge amount of of 
various um, rugby clubs, you know, who players are out within their own community and within their own the clubs outside the professional game. So, so rugby is a sport that is inclusive for all. Now, yes, there are issues because in all walks of life, in, in every industry, if, if you're in a building of 2,000 people working there, somebody there is not going to like somebody because of the sexuality or the colour of the skin or what country they come from because there are people like that there. So you're always going to get that. But I think, you know, so, so rugby and, and, and I think other sports as well, you know, if football, when somebody does come out in football, whoever that person will be, they will be hugely, I think, surprised how supportive the football community is. There'll be uh, people within that who will just be horrible, nasty people, and that's the same for all walks of life. So, you know, you, you can be yourself in sport today, particularly in rugby. But also as well, I think the other issue then that people, I think, overlook is that, particularly from my own experience, it was very difficult for me to accept who I was myself. So there are a lot of people in sport, professional and outside of it, who are actually struggling with dealing with their sexuality themselves. So there's no way you can expect those people to tell people and be out when they're struggling to accept it themselves. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's two, there's two faults to that. There's one that you, you know, for you to accept yourself, you need society and sport and a culture um, and in, in your communities in everyday life that is tolerant to people. So you feel that you can be yourself. So once you have that environment, which I think we are a long way there, there's still a lot of work to do again, you know, that you can be yourself, then that will help you accept yourself as well. So they both go hand in hand. But there are a lot of people in sport who no doubt too, you know, are struggling to deal it with, them, with themselves. And also as well, you must remember, a lot of people, I, I know one person in particular, in the professional game of rugby, it says, look, I, I'm comfortable with who I am. I don't need to tell anybody it's my own business and I'm just going to live my life the way that I want it. And, and you have to respect that. And, and that's, that's their choice. So a lot of people choose not to, to, to say as well and just get, get on with their lives. And, mm. and, and I think you know, there are many, many various different reasons, reasons for it. But if we can create an environment where people feel that they can take themselves to work or be themselves every day, um, then that will help people then if they are struggling with accepting themselves, that they have an environment and a culture where they feel that they can be themselves. Well said, former international rugby union referee Nigel Owens from the Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. And of course, you can hear Nigel's full interview on Newstalk.com. Another interesting thing is that, is that the Italians didn't invent pasta. Where did it come from? Uh, it, it came from North Africa, from the Arabs uh, who... Um, conquered the large parts of the south of Spain and they brought this hard wheat uh, with them. And uh, when they eventually left, uh, the Italians took it up in style and uh, they, they, they kept it and made it into pasta. Yeah, and as, as people would probably be aware, like there, there's hundreds of different sorts of pasta within it. Absolutely. Uh, why is there so many different sorts? What's the thinking behind that? Well, a lot of people think it's the whim of an engineer. One guy likes to, or one lady likes to make, make it flat another round. And the answer is it has to do with what it's used for. So although we have spaghetti with uh, a, a meat sauce, ideally speaking, the spaghetti should just be with a, a very light, cheesy, oily sauce mm. um, because it's, it's intended to just coat the pasta. Now, if you have a, a ragu, then you need something that's going to wrap it up. So you could use a, a penne or a tagliatelle. Now, a penne is designed with a nib at one end, hence its name, penne, and it's ribbed on the outside. So it's, it's all designed to hold pieces of meat together uh, when you're eating it. So there was a reason for all of it. Yes, uh, and but even in localities, if you travel around Italy, people have their own pasta. Absolutely. It's a huge deal there. Yeah. Uh, 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 
completely. The, now, you're a big fan of the spud, though. Uh, and, and obviously, I suppose <laughs> it's gone out of fashion nowadays. It has, sadly. And yet it's one of the, uh, one of the best foods around. It certainly would be my favourite uh, food. Mm. And it's a, it's a very good source of calories. It's a very good source of vitamin C. And the Irish used to eat it. They'd, they'd have potatoes and milk. And the combination of those two almost give you a perfect nutrition. And so they, they thrived on it. A potato grows very quickly. So it only needs, uh, say, six, six or nine months and you have a full crop. And it grows almost anywhere. So it was ideally suited to peasant farming in Ireland where they had bad land. And also it was a, a crop that you could fill in in between two crops. Yeah. So it was very popular in Ireland. Unfortunately, um, over, it became overpopular. And when the, the blight eventually emerged from Europe into Ireland... It really devastated things here. Yeah, and it's also, as I understand, it's a slow-release food, which kind of helped people when they were working during the day. Yeah, it is a slow-release food. It's, it's, it's starch, and um, yeah, it's, 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 for me, it's a perfect food, and it's a shame to see it decline. When did uh, the spud then first come to Ireland? Um, well, Christopher Columbus brought it to Spain first, and from Spain, um, it went into France, but it wasn't a particularly popular crop when it came. There are two reasons uh, for that. One is... It looked, it was part of the botanical family of deadly nightshade. And deadly nightshade was used as a poison. Mm. And secondly, uh, at the time, the dietetics uh, theory was that the higher a food was to God, the healthier it was. And the further away from God, the less healthy it was. So birds were better than, for example, uh, uh, swans yeah. and <laughs> and. Trees were better than bushes and bushes, but the worst of all was things that grow underground. They were, the, they were the furthest you could be from God. And so there was a great suspicion of it. So it, it, the story is of, of, of a, a, a pharmacist in the French army in the Franco-Prussian War. He was captured and uh, he was imprisoned in uh, uh, Prussia and he was fed on potatoes. Now, it may not have been popular with the peasants, but the prisoners had no uh, option. He realised its nutritional value. When he returned to France, the grain crops had begun to fail. The aristocracy were terrified that the peasants would get up angst. And uh, they set up a competition. And Parmentier, who was his name, Parmentier won the competition for the potato. So he tried a little trick, which I thought was very clever. He got 40 hectares of the suburbs of Paris and he guarded the potato crop during the day Mm. but let them go at night. And of course, the peasants came in took the potatoes, tried them, realised they weren't poisonous and realised that they could, they could thrive on them. So slowly it took off. That's interesting about the, uh, the religious belief uh, having an influence on what people eat. The, the same thing, as I understand it, had an, uh, the attitude to, affected the attitude towards chocolate that was seen to be somewhat godless. Yes, it's, it's funny. I, I think uh, there's two reasons why um, chocolate has, has gotten the, the name it has, because I don't think it merits it. It's not uh, an aphrodisiac and it's not um, uh, a mind-bending uh, drug. But the, uh, when the Spaniards went to uh, Central America and conquered uh, Mexico, the Aztecs uh, were very fond of um, hallucinating mushrooms hmm. and they would have consumed the hallucinating mushrooms in their coffee. And so the, the Dominicans and Jesuits that dominated the missionaries uh, saw them going sort of do lally <laughs> when they were drinking this stuff. Yeah. So they, they thought that it was the devil incarnate and they were particularly concerned about uh, chocolate being uh, a source of uh, libidinous thriving for, for, for women. 
And so there was there was a big battle between the Dominicans and the and the Jesuits over over chocolate in in Central America. Though they did, as I understand it, well, some of them started exporting it back to back to Europe anyway. Yeah, the Jesuits uh, were amazing. They uh, moved down into the Amazon region and they 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 were taking the uh, chocolate berries. They enslaved would be the wrong word. They indentured, if you like, the local Amazonians to live in villages, and of course they were converting them to Catholicism as well. And uh, one of the best historians of of chocolate points out that um, the fathers used to ring a bell at night advising the couples that it was now time to have a a bit of nookie. (laughs) So, but uh, they they, they were the biggest exporters of uh, chocolate from South America for many, many years. Indeed, that's fascinating. Mike Gibney is Professor Emeritus of Food and Health at UCD and the author of Food Through the Ages. I-C-U-M-I, in case you missed it, on News Talk. So they were walking down, you know, like, like trying to find a shelter for baby Jesus because, you know, they were traced to death. And then they went to the hotel and they said it was full. And then they went to another place, I forget what it's called, but, and then they let them in like, the little barn yoke with the hay yoke and that was the best place they could go for. And then they went in there and that's where baby Jesus slept and then the star went up and then they you know like the farmers kind of things they followed the star because they knew a new like newborn king came along father joe mcdonald st patrick's and st bridget's here in selbridge and straffen father joe we're here inside the church for you how important is a crib and a nativity scene and do you feel that they are slowly disappearing from people's homes and from shopping centers and from irish life in, in the past three days, both my emails and phone messages from people asking about the crib, shopping centres, whatever, yeah, they, they probably have become a bit more commercial as the years pass. But for us, no, crib is central. Um, more excited about the crib this year than any year. Probably it's relevance, you know, unmarried mother, a child with a death sentence over his head. Brings us into the mess of life, and I think we're all conscious of fear and sickness and the lots of suffering and so on. So the crib, certainly in our part, should be bigger than any other year. It'll take over the whole back of the church. Bales, real bales of hay, all that. Great excitement about it. Kids looking forward to come and visit. I'm having a chat with Evelyn Gaynor from Veritas.ie. We're here in your store in the heart of Dublin. You've a huge range of cribs and nativity scenes. Small nativity sets could start at anything as little as €5, would go all the way up to €395. But we also do uh, fibreglass outdoor nativity sets. They would start at around €400 and can go anything up to €3,000. We cater for every, for for general public and also for schools and parishes. You know, a lot of people would have nativity sets that have been handed down through generations with families. Uh, it's really precious to them, so we recognise that fact. And rather than somebody having to come in to buy a whole nativity set, we actually sell individual pieces. So, for instance, if one of the wise men broke on the baby, Jesus, the the baby Jesus, there's no problem. Uh, the customers can just come in to Veritas and we can help them out. Are people still using their cribs, their nativity 
sets at home. Is it still happening or is it slowly declining? Uh, well, for us in Veritas, uh, we can see the amount of people every year that come in to us and we sell an absolute huge amount of nativity so sets. They are so still popular? It's still extremely popular and from all uh, ages. You've got Fisher-Price ones, you even have ones with moss on them, with wood. We sell the nativity separate also. So you can actually come in and buy your shelter. Nativity plays this year have been cancelled because of the pandemic, but do you think they understand the story? Oh, absolutely, yeah. From our customers that come in to us, um, they would come in and say they're looking for something for their grandchild, and the majority of children would understand the story behind uh, the nativity. We don't have a nativity scene at home. Mary was pregnant with Jesus, and then they went on a donkey to the yoke. I think it might be like dying out. Tell us about the crib you have in your house. It has Jesus and it has a lot of cows, a lot of sheeps, Mary and Joseph. So basically, at my gaff, I have a, I have a little crib and it has Jesus and horses and lambs and hay bales and Mary and all the other townspeople. I have an African nativity set. It's kind of made out of these small wooden twigs. I think three shepherds and three kings and a few lambs, sheep, cows and donkeys. Henry McKean reporting for News Talk Breakfast. Now this week, John Forty caught up with director and writer Mark Cousins for Screen Time. Here's a short clip. And, you know, you obviously deal with movies that you've loved and that have a lot to say about vision and looking and we'll get to those in a minute but it's very personal uh, I mean you're lying in bed for part of it uh, I saw bits of your body I never thought I'd see before on screen had you any reservations about going so deep because you, you know you're more known for you know talking to other people and other people's movies and that kind of thing was there any reluctance to go this deep into Mark so to speak no, I don't think so. I mean, it is very personal. You see my full body, shall we say, a couple of times. And yeah, it's, you know, I haven't, I haven't interviewed somebody in t- more than 20 years. And so that bit of my life is long gone. And I just uh, I've o- o- always try to make films that are honest and open and personal and poetic and passionate and all those P words, you know. And um, so I wasn't at all um, reluctant to lie in bed and talk to camera and say here's what scares me here's about here at one point I talk about the bits of my body like I don't like my chest for example Mm. and I'm honest about that and I think that's quite nice to do that especially if you're a man you know because as you and I know especially for Irish men there's a sense the certain sense of what a man is and you know there's a you're supposed to be quite confident I think and and dare I say even macho in some ways you know and if you get beyond that then as a filmmaker you get into a kind of rich area, a kind of hotspot of 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 uh, more emotion, more feeling, more availability, and more perhaps poetics. Mm. Some of the outside of the movies of other people, some of the footage you show is is remarkable stuff. You have a, I think it's a uh, some kind of smoke tower being demolished, and you, you capture yeah. that in Edinburgh. You, you have a, a, a guy on a chimney stack who. We don't yeah. know what's going to happen to him. Were these things that were in your collection or did you go out and do yeah. these for this movie? 
very much in my collection I, because, you know, I, I just film every single day, you know, like mm. maybe I do 5, 10, 15, 20 shots per day. And so over the years, given the age that I am, I have amassed thousands and thousands of images and you don't know what you're going to use, use them for. It's like having a sketchbook or a diary or quite, you know, it's just pleasure. I don't do it for any particular purpose. But when I come to make a film like The Story of Looking, where I, where I look over my shoulder to see see what I've seen, then they're all available. Mm. And what mm-hmm. I'm sitting talking to you right now, looking out at the chimney stack, where some years ago, I saw that guy that you refer to standing out on, he had obviously climbed up on the roof. Uh, and, it, and it was intriguing and fascinating why he was there. He was smoking a cigarette. Uh, he didn't look scared. And it was just one of those pleasures. And as I talk to you now, the sun, you know, the light is changing here in Edinburgh. And again, the pleasure of right here, right now, you know, it, 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 that's what I tried to capture. And I think that's what that lad standing on the roof was enjoying the pleasure of right here, right now. So are you always on the lookout with your camera? Are you, are you one of those people who has it at all times in case life might need to be photographed? Always, always, and not in a professional way, to be honest, just yeah. in a kind of personal way, you know, like everybody's got a phone with a good camera on it now, and we're all taking pictures of our friends, and often we take pictures of our, when we've got together with our friends, because we're happy, mm. and we're joyous, and this moment might not last, and things might change, and, mm. a, and a pandemic might hit or something, you know, so <laughs> I'm always... <laughs> I'm always trying to, you know, just uh, enjoy the moment. And one of my ways of enjoying the everyday life is to film it. What an interesting guy, director Mark Cousins from Screen Time. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from seven till eight. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some hidden histories. Here is Gavin Royley and Donald Fallon. Have a great weekend. The first media scrum uh, of the treaty talks happens in a train station and there's photographers and there's thousands of people there waiting to try and doorstep the Irish delegation. But the British press are only focused in one man, which is Michael Collins. When the treaty delegates arrive in Britain, it's a great story. They arrive you know, via, via boat and train. The journey brings them to Hollyhead and then on to Euston Station uh, in London. And there's an absolute circus uh, at the London train station. And the Irish media are all there, kind of fighting for space beside the British. Uh, and they quote the Freeman's Journal, it was a reception which astonished all who witnessed it. The fervour of the crowd was intense. In the matter of numbers, the Irish section of the crowd was into three or four thousand. But the British press are focusing on one thing. They're watching these Irish guys get off the train mm. and the one who isn't there is Michael Collins. He he's travels, not there. Okay. He travels later from the other delegates and it's clear that he's the boogeyman from that point on <laughs> okay. in, the, in right. the press coverage. But then at Hans Place, something really remarkable happens and, and and the Irish public don't learn about this because it's not picked up on in the Irish mm. press, but it's all over the British press. Someone kind of whitewashes or, or, or scrawls the word murderer or, or some accounts specifically suggest Collins the murderer uh, into the pavement outside the doll's okay. residence. There's also a wreath laid at the cenotaph in memory of British soldiers murdered, as it says, in, in, in Ireland. That's a very symbolic, mm. highly charged act of, of protest. So these kind of things are, are picked up on in the British press and there's something very dangerous, really, 
in the talk around Collins in that press mm. too, uh, as if this one man had somehow sustained uh, a three-year guerrilla war. But people are, are whipped into a frenzy and you see that at Hans Place. Yeah, you sort of wonder then whether that is in, is in itself the, the product of London titles misreporting stuff that's been said in the apparent Irish press and then lionising this man who maybe hadn't necessarily done as much as was alleged. Um, how did Collins himself find all of that, this idea that he was the national bogeyman and that there was whitewash on the pavement outside the house? Brilliantly, Collins seems to have collected the press clippings uh, about himself <laughs> and sent some of them home to, to, his, to his beloved. So he found some of them quite humorous. Uh, and one, one uh, letter home, he, he writes, what do you think of the enclosed? The writing is all bosh. I never said any of these things. Just a few remarks. Newspaper men are inventions of the devil. Isn't that a great line? <laughs> wow. And whatever about the journos, who Collins clearly doesn't like, the photographers are something he really tries to get away from. And you see that in the images of Collins making his way through the, the streets of London. They're mm-hmm. at Downing Street. And look at how awkward Collins is, rushing past them. Someone who was very consciously avoiding photographers mm. for years uh, yeah, up to this point. because you have so. to remember that through 1919 and 1920, they didn't really want their whereabouts to, to be very public figures because they were always going to be in somebody's crosshairs. So they're yes. always trying to keep a low profile. And as you know, in your line of work, I mean, politicians generally run in front of cameras. They don't run away from them. So it's, <laughs> it's a very strange mm. and unlikely celebrity uh, that, befalls, that befalls Collins. Uh, poor Collins was very unfortunate that he lived in the days before you could put a mobile phone to your ear to pretend that you're on some very important <laughs> call. Uh, while you're, the journalists are trying to doorstep you afterwards. The, the great trick these days is to ring a minister while they're walking past you and then seeing while they've got the phone up to the rear, then to hear it ringing. Um, it's happened once. I, I won't say who the, the unfortunate minister was, but it was quite amusing to everyone who saw it. Um, one of the main victories of the Irish in the media war was in this idea of kind of creating a buzz around themselves, this idea of actually becoming attraction, almost harnessing the, the apparent star power that they had in the British press. They definitely seized on the potential that London brought. There was just a lot more journalists in London than there was in Dublin. And one of the strings in their bow, I think, was Desmond Fitzgerald, father of Garrett, uh, a poet. He'd been born in London. Mm. He had very significant kind of social and cultural connections there, real bohemian character. Uh, and as well as being a journalist himself, you know, he was one of the key figures in producing the Irish Bulletin. But he okay. knew a lot of people in London and he kind of took advantage of that. So there's a steady stream of cultured visitors who want to meet the Irish delegation. George Bernard Shaw, uh, the very influential poet Ezra Pound. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, you know, no Irish people had caused so much commotion in London well, since perhaps Oscar I Wilde. I was nearly going to say, because we've discussed on this slot before when Oscar Wilde went on an American speaking tour and he just became this massive celebrity where the great and the good all wanted to go and have a drink and spend some time. With them. And it almost seems like the great and the good are all lining up at 22 Hands Place to go and visit a- the Irish. Absolutely. And De- Desmond Fitzgerald takes the credit for that. He built that sense of buzz ar- around the delegation. So th- the media image of, Sinn, F- of Sinn Feiners, as, as they're yeah. termed in the press, is you know the savage, the people that are shooting policemen in the back down kind of rural Irish roads. Uh, but then there's this really prestigious feeling in who wants to knock on their door that changes that narrative. So there's a real kind of constant buzz around Hands Place. Uh, and it's an orchestrated buzz. And the American media are kind of invited in in big mm. numbers and are accommodated. So Sinn Féin played that very, very well on, on, the, on the world stage. Uh, I suppose the funny thing about all of this is that in the end, if the, the press had proven itself to be so easily malleable by the Irish who were going over there, that then the media was also able to spin the treaty in whatever way they wanted and that meant that you had maybe competing narratives about what exactly the treaty ended up containing. Yeah, and that's what's so so interesting about this centenary to me. I mean, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, it's a remarkable document, it, just as the Good Friday Agreement was, you know, in that, in that it can be editorialised in whatever way one chooses. And to both sides, it was either a victory or a defeat, depending on what a journalist chooses mm-hmm. to emphasise. So, for some British newspapers, this is humiliating, it's a deal that's negotiated with terrorists, it's a surrender... 
to other British newspapers, it's a triumph because the Irish didn't get a republic. Mm. It's a compromise. It's statesman's like. Yeah. They seceded, uh, but they were still a dominion. So yeah. they were almost less a part of the empire than ever before. It yeah. maintains some connection. And then in Ireland, you know, it's the building block of a free state. Collins describes it in the doll as the freedom to achieve freedom. Mm. All the major newspapers support it. But then the Republican press can say, no, th- this is a compromise too far. We've lost the republic. So it's an amazing thing, the treaty. It can be spun in any way. And when you read the newspapers of a century ago, I think it's fair to say the power of the typewriter is very clear. Mm. And we know that the gun and the ballot box brought Britain to the table, you know, caused the treaty. But perhaps the typewriter did its bit too, mm. you know, and it's, it's interesting to look back on the press. I C U M I. In case you missed it. On News Talk.